Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah 49. Jeremiah 49, beginning at verse 13. I've called this Petra, past, present, and future. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all its city will be a perpetual waste. And I have heard a message from the Lord, and an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Come together, come against her, and rise up to battle. For indeed I will make you small among nations, despised among men. Your fierceness has directed you, the pride of your heart. O you who dwell in the cliffs of the rock, who holds the height of the hill, and though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. Edom also shall be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by will be astonished and will hiss at its plagues as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. And their neighboring cities, says the Lord, no one shall abide there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. As we get into 46 through 51, it's very, very unique um, section of the book of Jeremiah. Why? Because Jeremiah's whole ministry, 30 plus years up to this point, was that judgment is imminent. It's going to come from the north by the king of Babylon. I don't want you to fight it. God is dealing with you because of your idolatry. And you're going to be there for 70 years. And the best thing you could do is capitulate and don't fight this thing um, because it's going to happen. And he was faithful to, to give this message for 30 years. And the false prophets, on the other hand, were saying, we're not buying it. We don't, we don't believe that's going to take place. And they told the people not to worry. They really got on Jeremiah's case to the point where they said, we don't want to hear this stuff. And they threw him in prison. And he was, when he got out, they threw him in a dungeon. And the third time, they threw him right down in a miry pit. And he got stuck in the mud. And that's where and how they treated the Lord's, the Lord's prophet. Well, what the false prophets proved was just that. Because when you get to chapter 39, everything that Jeremiah has been talking about for 30 years finally comes to pass. And Jerusalem falls. The temple is burned to the ground. The people are either killed or taken to Babylon for the next 70 years, just as the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah. Was it a pleasant message? No. Was it a message people wanted to hear? No. Matter of fact, they got rid of Jeremiah. And, um, and then we come, that's 39, but when you get to 46, now I'll, I'll put it up on the screen so you can see the, the nations that we're going to be talking about this morning. 46 through 51, we change now, and God is going to be dealing with eight or nine different nations that he's going to judge, the surrounding nations. And that's what encompasses these chapters. Um, The nations involved are Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Elam, and eventually Babylon. They're all going to be destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And as we went through this on Wednesday evening, on some of these countries, the very last verse would say this, and that they would be restored, but only to four or five of them. Egypt, Moab, Ammon, Elam are given a promise of future restoration, it says, in the latter days. So there are some, Jordan is primarily what we're going to be looking at, what we would call Jordan this morning. So instead of dealing with, uh, one we're going to deal with this morning is an in-depth look at the judgment of Edom and the city of Petra in particular, past, present, and in the future. So let's go to our text. Uh, Let's go to chapter 49, where the beginning, we're reading in verses 7 and 8, and let's talk about Edom. Verse 7 says, Against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has her wisdom vanished? 
Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him the time that I punish him. Now Esau is Edom. Let me give you just a little um, prophecy concerning and background on this nation. You can see where Edom would be located there. There, there's more space given to the prophecy directed to Edom, probably because Edom was related to Israel. There was Esau, and there was Jacob. They were brothers. And the two nations, Edom and Israel, have come from these two men. Edom and Israel have not been friendly down through the years. Edom has become a great, has, had become a great nation, for God has said, that he would make a great nation of Esau. You might remember the, the blessings that were given. Edom was the territory that is south and more to the east of the Dead Sea, an area between the Dead Sea and the, and the Gulf of Agba. Uh, Edom was in for judgment from God. They had become a great nation and furnished advisors to other nations. And the rock city of Petra was such a secure place that it actually acted as a depository for the great nations of both Babylon and Egypt and carried a bank account there. I'll just stop and say I would liken Petra to what we would call Fort Knox today. And you'll see why it was so secure. I'll actually show you pictures of it in just a minute. There was a place where they could store their treasures and feel safe about it. The city was hewn out of solid rock on both sides. There was only one entrance into the rock city. And at this time, I'm going to show you a picture of the entrance going in to Petra. This is what it looks like when you're just at the beginning. So this would be the very beginning. Notice how high the cliffs are on both sides and how narrow. It was a tremendous place in its day, but God took away all the greatness which was once enjoyed. Their greatness depended largely on the nations around them that looked to them because they felt Petra was so secure. Now I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 13 because Petra has more than one name. Verse 13 said, this is the beginning of our text, for I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra, now Basra, and Selah and Petra are all one and the same. Uh, they shall become desolate, a reproach and a curse, and all of its cities will be a perpetual waste. Basra and Petra, the rock city is still there today, completely deserted, which is what we're told in verse 18. So let's look at down again at verse 18, particularly the last two verses. No one shall abide there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. I've been to Petra three or four times, I don't remember. And it's just an incredible um, place to visit. But I want to give you um, a little bit of of its background and its history as we look at the past. Now, entering this great ravine, the path runs along a dry, looks like a dry riverbed, and the sheer cliffs on either side rise higher and higher, as you go deeper into the heart of the mountain. It has a perpetual twilight, because the sun really can't get into it, with an occasional glimpse of sun on the cliff face high above. In some parts, the road is 20 feet wide. Now, that would be the the biggest area, but it doesn't last long. And um, the road twists and turns and can seldom be seen for more than a few yards ahead. Most of it is very, very narrow. And it seems to be going on forever in a rather grim, hopeless kind of way. And then, all of a sudden, as you're making your way through this, all of a sudden you get to this place right here. And you you realize that you're at the end of something and the beginning of something else. Uh, Some of you might remember this if you ever watched Indiana Jones, because this is where it was filmed. So as as you're making your way through this very, very long, narrow passage, this is the only way you can get in to Petra. And once you get into it, 
then it opens up into this. That's called the, the treasure house. And um, it's all made out of, it's all carved out of the mountain. Matter of fact, the whole city of Petra is completely carved out of solid rock, and that's why it remains to this day. Let me tell you the, the people that inhabited it. This was the great capital of the Nabataeans, from which at the height of their power they ruled the country as far north as Damascus. There was an earlier Edomite town on its site. We are studying in Jeremiah the judgment of Edom. And, um, but there's no trace of that Edomite city anymore. The city was extensively occupied from the 5th century B.C., so 500 years before Christ, and then went on for about 500 years after the Lord. Uh, little is known about the history of the Nabataeans, but they probably started as a wandering Arab tribe and grew rich on the plunder of the caravans coming from Arabia. And sometimes identified with Naboth. Remember Naboth from the Old Testament? And may perhaps be referred to by Obadiah in his tirade against the Edomites. The first historical mention is in 312 B.C. when Petra was captured by Antigonus and a great treasure was taken. At that time, it was probably no more than a storage place and not really a place to live. Now, during the breakup of the Greek Empire, and let me just refresh you Daniel students for a second. Daniel is showing every major world empire that would ever exist. He doesn't mention Babylon and the Assyrians because he's living during the time of the Babylonians. So he's picking it up from there. And after the Babylonians fell, you had the Medo-Persian Empire. And after you had the Medo-Persian Empire, then you had the Greeks with Alexander the Great. And, and then it talks about the Roman Empire coming onto the scene. Well, here, it's during this time, um, during the Greek Empire, when they were dispersed, when Alexander the Greek, great, well, he was Greek, but he was great too. He was a great Greek. <laughs> he had his four generals. He had conquered the world by the age of 30, what? One, two, or three. And he died young. And he said, well, who gets the empire? He said, give it to the strong. So his four generals took it. Cut it up in four sections. And so when it reads, the breakup of the Greek Empire and the beginning of the Roman, many countries round about were uh, plunged into unrest. But the Nabataeans continued their unchecked, safe way of living in their hidden den, secret city. They took advantage of the weakness of the surrounding states. And in the first year, King Eretus III expanded his empire from Petra all the way up to Damascus. The city continued to be occupied uh, through, though in decreasing numbers, and sometime during the fourth century, Christians came in. But the trade routes and, and the caravans came to an end, and so did the city, so today it's nothing more than an empty shell. Uh, Petra is one of the greatest wonders ever wrought by nature and man. How many of you have act, had a chance to be, anybody here been to Petra? You need to sign up to Israel so we can go to Petra sometime and, and show it to you. That's the past. Um, I want you to, we'll go to the present, and to do that I want you to look at chapter 49, verse 18, again. And it says, no one shall abide there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. And if you would go to Petra today, um, it's known as the major tourist industry for all of Jordan. Um, a lot of times we will stay in Jordan. A lot of times we'll go down to a lot and uh, go into Jordan and come back the same day. And you're able to see the entire city. Now, seeing that you can't go there, I'll take you on a short journey and show you what the inside of Petra looks like. This is um, um, a picture where th that's a complete amphitheater that can sit thousands and thousands of people. We give our Bible study there. 
of, of Petra. So it was, it's huge on the inside. But remember, again, it has only one way of getting to it. Uh, here's, here's another picture that shows you um, the dwellings. These are all apartments. And they've been there, some of them go back as far as 500 B.C. And it's never been destroyed because it's made out of solid rock. Um, here's another one that shows... Uh, this is a Christian um, monastery, and um, it's just incredibly massive on the inside. But again, the only way that you can get in is this narrow little entrance um, that reveals um, the treasure city. So in the past, um, it was Fort Knox for Babylon, for Egypt. In the present, um, there's tours, tourists that go there every single day, and nothing's changed in all these years. But nobody lives here. Just tourists visit. All right? Let's talk about the future. And what does it have to do, what does Petra have to do with the last days? Last week, this time, we had um, Chris with us and Elijah Abraham with us, and David Hawking was here. Uh, the stage is set as I speak in the Middle East, as Dave so well talked about the day of the Lord. And he just laid it all out, exactly what the world is about to enter into. What is the day of the Lord? It is a seven-year period of time where God's judgment will be poured out just as surely as when the Lord told Jeremiah, judgment is coming, is imminent. Question, did it happen? It happened. Did they spend seven years in captivity? Yeah. Daniel 9 verse 1 says, I, Daniel, was reading the book of Jeremiah. And I found out it was determined that 70 years were going to be in exile. And 70 years had come. He'd been there the whole time, the whole 70 years. And he was reading Jeremiah. He says, time to go home, Lord. And so he prays. And this is where we get the incredible revelation of the very day that Jesus would come to the day. Daniel tells us, giving the Bible um, no, as no shadow of a doubt, the living word of God. So just as sure as it happened to Jeremiah, the day of the Lord is that seven-year period of time. It will happen, and the times of the signs are here. And this was one of the main top topics, even though it was a pastor's conference in Omaha. This was the main thing that they were talking about is the apostasy, the falling away of the church, getting away from the Bible, getting away from Bible prophecy, the church not being equipped to explain to people. Everybody's wondering, something's coming down. We know something's going to happen. Well, the church of all people should be the ones who are equipped to know. This is a good place for an amen. For Thessalonians 5, we're not children of, of the night, we're children of the day that that day should overtake us as a thief. What day? The day of the Lord. My Bible says I'm supposed to know all about it. And we do know a lot. But the only way that's going to happen, gang, is if you labor in the word and you do it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. You run across the judgment of Edom and it talks about the city where people are living in the cliffs that they're going to be judged. I look back at my history book, it happened. And I've been there and nobody lives there. Just like the word of God says. The next prophetic event to take place is the rapture of the church. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour of when that's going to happen. We knew to the very day Jesus would come the first time, April 6, 32 AD. How do you know that? Because Daniel says so, right to the day. I know exactly when Jesus is coming the second time. And if you're not saved and you go through the tribulation, then you need to re read the last couple of verses of Daniel 12 because it says it'll be 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation and the Lord comes to the day. So people say, well, no man knows the day or the hour. Well, that's the rapture of the church because the Lord is gracious and he's patient. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So the Lord's gonna pull the trigger, but he's gonna do it 
He's going to probably hold off till the very last as much as he can take. But then when that happens, you're going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I told the first service, you're going to be metamorphosized. You know what metamorphosis is? That's what happens to a caterpillar uh, when they spin their cocoon. And just over a period of six to eight weeks, something like that, they go from this creature that crawls around on the ground and all they do is eat and crawl on the ground. And then they spin this cocoon, about six to eight weeks it opens up, and they're a brand new creation. They call it metamorphosis. And they're metamorphosized into some beautiful creature that turns into a monarch. And it has enough brains not to only enjoy the flight, but they all end up at the same mountain outside of Mexico City in Mexico. I saw one the other day, and I told my wife, honey, he's on his way to Mexico to meet his buddies. How is it that a monarch in Seattle, Washington, and a monarch from um, North Carolina just know how to find the same place (laughs) outside of Mexico City? Google it. It's a mind blower. And you see everything just covered with monarch butterflies. They're snowbirds. They know know what they're doing. (laughs) They got their act together. Well, that's what's going to happen to us in a moment, just like that. And the word there is metamorphosize. It's changed into a new body, having the same capacities that our Lord Jesus had when he walked through walls, when he ascended and descended, when he appeared, disappeared. And it's going to be a wonderful event that that no man knows the day or the hour. Now, Petra will play a major role during the last three and a half years of the day of the Lord, also known as the tribulation. This tribulation is divided into three different sections. Um, And there are seven judgments. There's the seven seal judgments. There's the seven trumpet judgments. And then there's the seven bowl judgments. And they gradually intensify Um, as we go through these judgments. Um, For example, a little more time during the second service. Um, In the bold judgments, it says one-third of green grass will be destroyed, one-third of the fresh water, one-third of the oceans. But when you get to the bold judgments, it's total. It's all of the fresh water. It's all of the ocean that are completely consumed and destroyed. Um, The key to the book of Revelation, if you're taking notes this morning, to understand the book, you have to have the key, which is chapter 1, verse 19. John is on the island of Patmos. The Lord appears to him in chapter 1, and he says, John, write the things that you have seen. Write the things that are, and then write the things which will be after this. Well, what did he see? Well, he saw the Lord Jesus in his glorified body. Write it down, John. And then he says, write the things that are. Present tense to him, he was still in the church age. That's Revelations 2. I said Revelations. I can't believe it. I scold people for saying that. Shame on you. Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are present tense. And the things which will take place after this, after what? The Greek word is, is called, called metatonta. After these things. Well, what preceded that? The church age. So write the things that are going to happen after the church age. After chapter 3, no more red letters. You start in chapter 4, and um, John says, I heard a voice that said, come on up. And I believe it's a picture of the, of, of the church, but... The church is no longer on the planet. John Higgins gave a great Bible study on Revelation 5. And those that are redeemed from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will, will learn this song. So we know the words of the song. We don't know the melody yet. But um, we are not going to be on planet Earth. The key to the book is that it's divided in three sections. Chapter 1, then chapters 2 and 3, and then 4 through the rest of the book things after the church age. Now, during the tribulation, um, a covenant is going to be made with Israel. 
Um, the one thing when Elijah was here, I asked him a question. Um, he's an expert coming from Baghdad, raised a Muslim, of explaining the difference between a Shuni and a Shiite. And they hate each other, and they both want each other killed. And the only thing that they can agree on, and that they hate even more, is the nation of Israel. Uh, they're the little Satan, Israel. We're the great Satan. And now Obama wants to let in, I don't know how many more um, people uh, from that area of Syria into our country. Boy, I better be careful because we're going to get really sidetracked here and I'll forget where I was. The covenant. Israel is a problem. Uh, They're dwelling safely right now. But Daniel 9, verse 27 says that there is going to be a covenant made with the nation of Israel. I don't know if you remember this. Remember Yasser Arafat? Remember the Oslo Peace Accord? It was actually made to last for seven years. Isn't that an interesting number? Well, of course, Arafat reneged. He didn't follow through with it. It fell apart right away because he doesn't want peace with Israel. One of our presidents gave away the farm. says, what do you want from Israel? Israel gave him everything they asked for, and he got up and walked out because he has no intentions of making an agreement with Israel. It goes against everything that they believe in. They're infidels. Do you know you're an infidel? And if you're not conquered by the sword, you must be assimilated. You've got to die. That's, that's, that's what Islam is. And yet there's going to be a peace treaty. I'm quoting now Daniel 9, verse 27. The last verse of this great chapter. Then he, that's the Antichrist, will have a covenant or a peace treaty with many for one week. Now, it's called Daniel's 70th week. 69 of them have been fulfilled when Jesus was here. And that means there's one week left. Now, a week is seven years. We say a decade is 10 years. Well, in the Hebrew here, a week is seven years. So the covenant is going to be for a seven-year period of time, just like the Oslo Peace Accord with Arafat. It says, but in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he, the Antichrist, will bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. What does that tell us? That tells us there has to be a temple. That tells us that the priesthood needs to be reinstituted because they're the only ones that, of the tribe of Levi, the family of Cohen in particular, would be qualified to perform the sacrifices in the temple. And um, this is reaffirmed in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, where he's, well, I'm getting ahead of that. I, I need to go back to Daniel 27. And he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offerings. So he is the Antichrist. He will do that. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So, three and a half years into this peace treaty, in the tribulation, this man, called the man of sin, he is going to be assassinated. Daniel actually gets into this guy having losing um, power in his arm and one of his eyes. Um, But it's debated uh, whether he actually died but Revelation 13 gives us that indication and comes back to life. Revelation 13, 3 says the Antichrist had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. So the implication is the guy really died. And all the world marveled and followed after the beast. Could you imagine after what we've seen in Dallas when JFK was taken down by Lee Harvey Armstrong? And um, the fatal head wound that was there, taken to the hospital. Can you imagine him just getting up and walking out and still being around today? Well, that's what's going to happen here. So when the people see this, so the next verse, so they worship the dragon gave, who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like this guy? Who can make war with him? We can't even kill him. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. 
How long is that? Three and a half years. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand the book of Revelation is important. Seven years divided in half, and it repeats itself over and over again in different ways, but saying the same thing about the three and a half years. Revelation 13, 5, he even has, he's imitating, and this is what the devil always does. Jesus is the real Christ. Another way of saying antichrist would be a counterfeit Christ who has a counterfeit John the Baptist. This guy has his own John the Baptist. He's called the false prophet. And I'm quoting now chapter 13 that an image is made of the antichrist and he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead. Do you know that the Bible teaches that the Lord is going to put a mark on you? So what's he doing here? He's counterfeiting the Lord. And um, what I told the first service, it reminds me of, of Nebuchadnezzar. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? He didn't like the fact that the Lord said that his kingdom was going to be replaced by the Medo-Persians. And so he made an image of himself. This one was all gold, 60 feet tall. And he says, everybody has to worship it. And if you don't worship it, then we're going to have a fiery furnace and we're going to throw you right in it. And everybody got down except these three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did they stick out or what? Yeah, but they, 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 they weren't going to bow to it. They said, we're not, we're not afraid. Uh, if you want to throw us in the fire, fiery furnace, our God can deliver us. It's not hard for him. But know this, king, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. So here, the same thing is going down. Um, one of the guys, the pastors, were talking about the shooting that took place a while back, where the killer um, went up, and he was, when he broke into the classroom, he was going around, he's asking, are you a Christian? Yes. You're dead. What do you suppose the rest of the Christians in the room were thinking at that time? At that time, they're going to find out who's going to take a stand and who's not. So he goes up to the next one, no, I'm not a Christian. Okay, you go stand over there. And he goes up to the next one, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Rudy, you're dead, man. And, um, and so he went around. Seven or eight people took their stand. And um, what John was giving a study, that's what it was. John was all upset because when they printed it in the paper, um, they said a shooter killed this many people. And John was upset, and he wrote, he wrote the editor of the paper, and he says, your, your paper needs to say a murderer killed Christians. Not a shooter shot people. He shot them because they were Christians. He's a murderer. And my Bible says thou shalt, it doesn't say kill, thou shalt not murder. And um, so, but it's going to be the same thing in Revelation. Either you, and there will be those who will be martyred, a lot of martyrs during the tribulation. And no one could buy or sell if they don't have the mark or the name of the beast. Here is wisdom, let him who has Understand and calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man and his number is 666. We could get into a whole study of what that means. People who know nothing about the book of Revelation, they know about 666, right? Basically, it's a study of gametria. And for every Hebrew letter is attributed a numerical value to it. So when it says to calculate it, um, again, this is being written to primarily Israel, so I'm sure Gamatria will come into it. Um, one guy's number that actually added up to 666 was Claudius Caesar. That's why they thought in the Hebrew when you add up his name Claudius, the equivalence to his letters with, with the, um, the numbering system does add up to 666. And there's others. But it's not Henry Kissinger. I'm pretty sure of that one. Anyway, it goes on Jesus talked about this, or Paul did. He said, don't let anybody deceive you about this period of time 
that that day, what day? The day of the Lord shall not come except there come a falling away first. Now one of the main topics in Omaha was stay the course, guys. Don't succumb to all the trends that are keep sneaking into the church. Don't compromise with the Bible for the sake of numbers. Don't uh, allow a commentary or another book. Replace this book as your primary source of uh, being fed. And um, uh, look out for, for uh, the seeker-sensitive movement, seeker-sensitive philosophies that's creeping into the church. And stay the course and teach all of the Bible, the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Good place for an amen. And if you do it, you stumble across uh, these little judgments of Edom and say, how could that tie into anything? Well, it ties into everything. Because we have here a prophecy that nobody's going to live in this place called Petra. But I'll put yet at the end of that sentence. Because people are going to live in Petra in our future, in the day of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. People say, you can't understand the book of Daniel. Don't read it. It's too confusing. Jesus didn't seem to think so. He says, whoever reads it, and then in parentheses, um, one of the few places you'll find parentheses in the Bible about the abomination of desolation, whosoever reads, let him understand. You know what that means? It means you gotta have Daniel down pat. You gotta understand the book from... The, one to 12, and know all the kingdoms. And here's the litmus test. Either it happened, gang, or it didn't. Either there was an Egyptian number one empire, or there wasn't. Either there was an Assyrian empire, or there wasn't. Either there was a Babylonian empire, or there wasn't. Either there was a Medo-Persian empire, or there wasn't. Either there was a Roman empire, or there wasn't. But looking back on it, Daniel predicted every one of them spot on. Even the four kings that would come out of Alexander the Great. And he nails every one of them. And then it says in the last days there's going to be a one world government coming out of the old revived Roman Empire. You think it's going to stop being wrong? No, I don't think so. There's a, um, a one world religion that Elijah was talking about and Roger Oakland was talking about. And there's a one world government. And the stage is set. And we can... We can see it unfolding. Jesus gives credibility to the book of Daniel. Whoever reads, let him understand. When you see the abomination of desolation and the sacrifice coming to an end, Jesus gives instructions. He says, let them who are in Judea run, flee. Let him who is on the housetop, don't go down or take anything from your house. He says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath day. Because an Orthodox Jew can't go any farther than two-thirds of a mile. Pray that it's not in the wintertime. Pray that you're not pregnant. Why? Because it's tough to travel when you're pregnant. He says, head for the hills. Well, Isaiah chapter 16 actually tells us where the hills are they flee to. So let's turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 16. The first four verses. I'll give you a second to get there. Oh, I love the sound of Bible pages turning. Sounds great. 700 years before Jesus was born, he's telling us about Petra. Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see it, run. Now Isaiah tells us where they run to. Verse one, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah. There it is, to the wilderness. What is Petra? Well, it's Basra, it's Selah, and it's Petra. All three are one and the same. To the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. That would be those that are running from Jerusalem, do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. And where is Petra? In Moab, that area of Edom. Be a shelter to them from the face of who? The spoiler. 
another name for the Antichrist. For the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. The Bible tells us exactly where they flee to, Petra Selah. Now, let's see how the Lord protects them and how long he protects them for. You need to turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 begins with three symbols, a woman, a child, and a fiery red dragon. The woman is Israel, the child is Jesus, and the fiery red dragon is the devil. Well, how can you be so sure, Dwight? Well, because verse 9 tells me, that great devil was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. Clear enough? Fiery red red dragon is the devil. And then we read, after the first six verses, People are surprised when I tell them that the devil's in heaven and he has access to it. But verse seven says that war broke out in heaven and the devil and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels they fought, but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them anymore. You've heard Star Wars, these are angel wars and it's really gonna happen. And Michael's gonna win. We got him outnumbered. They only had, we read up here that the dragon drew a third of the stars Well, what does that mean? That means there's two-thirds left that remain faithful to the Heavenly Father. Well, he's thrown to the earth. Let's read verse uh, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in him, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. How much of a short time does he have? Three and a half years. Are you sure? Yes. Let's read verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman and gave, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times plural, and half a time. Well, how much is that? Three and a half years. A time is one year. Times, plural. Two plus one is three and a half. Three and a half years. From the presence of the serpent. So they're supernaturally protected for three and a half years. Where? Well, Isaiah 16 tells us. In Petra. So the serpent spewed out his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. The Antichrist is after the remnant because that's his only card that gives him any hope of remaining. And again, during the first service, we read here that the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now, is it a little flood? Is it symbolic like other things in chapter 12? Is it an army? Well, one of the advantages of teaching through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is last Wednesday night we were in Jeremiah 47. And I'll just read verses one and two. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh smote Gaza, thus says the Lord, behold, waters rise up out of the north. Okay, waters are coming from the north. And shall be an overflowing flood and shall overflow the land and all that is therein, the city and them that dwell therein. Then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl. Well, in context, it's referred to 164 times in the book of Jeremiah, Babylon, and they come from the north. But here they're called a flood. But we know it's the Babylonian army. Is everybody with me? So if I think... It's consistent to say that what we have in view here is the Antichrist literally having an army that is going after the remnant as they're fleeing their way to Petra, but then the earth opens up and swallows the army. Some are going, you expect me to believe that? (laughs) Has that ever happened before? Well, as a matter of fact, it has happened before. Remember Moses and Korah? Well, Korah didn't think that 
Moses should be the leader. He thought he should be the leader. So he started a rebellion. And the Lord heard about it. And the Lord said, Moses, come here. I want to tell you something. I want you to go talk to all the people and tell them this. Everybody who wants to be with Korah, go with Korah. Everybody who wants to be with you, stand over here. And so we have, let's pretend that you guys are Korah. No, they were Korah the first service. You guys are Korah, okay? And you, you guys are with Moses. And <laughs> good, one, good move for you. So after that, they, they, everybody knew whose side was on whose side, what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and everybody who was with him. And everybody that was with Moses was safe. It has happened before. Um, the, the judgments that the two witnesses perform, you say, what? No wind? No rain? For the duration, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, there won't be any rain? That ever happened before? Yeah, I'm the same prophet, Elijah. He told Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say so. James chapter 5 tells us it was, he was an ordinary Joe. Elijah was an ordinary man. But when he prayed it wouldn't rain, it didn't rain for the space of three and a half years. Revelation chapter 11, I'll just flip back a page. You guys are getting a little bit more than first service, better for it being at second service. Revelation 11, uh, they had power to shut heaven so that no, prof, no rain would fall in the days of their prophecy. They had powers over to water to turn them to blood. Well, the no rain sounds like Elijah, and the water turning into blood sounds like Moses to me. But what were the days of their prophecies? If you look at verse 3, they will prophesy 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. So we have 42 months, 1,260 days, times time and a half a time, or three and a half years. Over and over again, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that this book is divided up into these segments. Jeremiah, so let's take it a step farther. Let's go to the very end now of the tribulation period. By this time, while they're living in Petra, they have become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, and they made a mistake. This is prophesied that they will call on the Lord back in the book of Hosea. Now, if you want to turn there, you can, but I'm just going to quote it because it's only three verses. I'm quoting the last verse of Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, and it reads like this. I will go and return to my place. There's only one man who can say that. It's talking about heaven. I'm going to go back and return to my place. He came from heaven. He came to earth. And then he says, I'm going to go back to my place, Israel, until they, Israel, acknowledge their offense, their sin, singular, not sins, one sin, and seek my face and their affliction. They will seek me early. He says, I'm going to go back to heaven. I'm going to wait there. John 1.11 says this, that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not his own people. They didn't recognize their Messiah when he came. But then, Hosea 6, verse 1, this is what the people in Petra will say after three and a half years. Come, let's return to the Lord. He's torn, he'll he'll, he'll heal us up. He has stricken, he'll bind us up again. When? Well, after two days, he'll revive us. And on the third day, he's gonna raise us up and we're gonna live in his sight. All right, two days, how long is that? Well, there is no time in eternity, right? Peter says one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years like a a day. So two days, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. And so after two days, after the 2,000 years, they will acknowledge him. They'll say, we're gonna call on the Lord. On the third day, now we're entering into another thousand years. We're talking about the millennium. And it clearly says we're going to live in his sight. Clearly a millennial verse. But they have to do one thing first. They've got to repent of their single sin of rejecting their Messiah. Jesus said, that these are the last words of Jesus to Israel in Matthew 23, 39. For I say to you, you will see me 
you will see me no more until you say, Israel, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Gang, that's gonna happen in Petra. Are you sure? Yes. Because of Revelation, well, let's go to Revelation, we're in Revelation right now. Just flip over to chapter 19. And we'll get to the for sure part that it's Petra in just a second. They will call on him from Petra, and when they do call on him, Lord, help, forgive us for not receiving you as the Jewish Messiah. When they say that, then heaven opens. Verse 11 of chapter 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head many crowns. He had a name written which no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he would strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he speaks. And as he speaks, they are consumed. And he takes a false prophet and the beast that he throws him into the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, verse 21, that proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh. The carnage is described in more detail. If you go back to chapter 14, verse 9, Revelation 14, verse 19, and the winepress was trampled outside the city. It says, and the blood came up out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Well, how long is that? Well, it's exactly 174 miles. That's how, how much 1,600 furlongs is. That's how much carnage. We have the nations of the world gathered in the valley with what we call Armageddon. And here's the interesting thing, gang. It begins on Mount Carmel. And if you go 174 miles from Mount Carmel, as a crow flies, to the mile, you'll end up in Petra. Go ahead and Google this. Be a Berean. Check it out. And the Bible nails it right to the mile. That's the carnage outside. And that's how great this devastation is. All right? How do I know for sure it's Petra? Isaiah chapter 60. Let's hear those pages turn. Chris said, for those of you guys who have um, um, your iPhones and you're using that for your Bible, you have to get the app that sounds like pages turning in your Bible. So you need to get one of those. Isaiah chapter 63 begins with a question, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Eden? whose dried garments from where? From Basra. What's Basra? It's Petra in Edom. The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes for the day of my vengeance, also known as the day of the Lord, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Isaiah 63 says that Jesus, when they call upon him in Basra, that he comes. And he comes, and from that place, he takes care of the nations that are gathered together against him. And they are immediately wiped out. And from Basra, the Lord is going to go from Basra to the Mount of Olives. 
Well, Dwight, how do you know that? Well, you need to turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is right before Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Give you a second to find it. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 4. We read, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be be divided in your midst, and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. In Jeremiah's time, it was just Babylon. But in the day of the Lord is all nations. To Jerusalem, the city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women's ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So that was Basra, the battle of Armageddon. And now we read, and in that day, after the battle is over, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two, from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain will go towards the north, and half of it towards the south. And um, it says, you will flee in verse, in verse five, thus the Lord my God will come. And then what does it say? And all of the saints with you. Who's that? That's you guys. Do you know how to ride a horse? You better learn. Because <laughs> you're gonna be riding a white horse. All the saints are with him. I look forward to that. And so, as we wind things up this morning, we have the complete scenario that you wouldn't have unless you had Jeremiah talking about even Edom. Um, it's a foreshadow of what's going to be. Uh, there's nobody dwelling in Petra today. You can go there and visit it. But here, Jesus returns to the last place, the Mount of Olives. Acts 1, verse 10. This is when Jesus is bodily taken into heaven. What I would give to see that, my Lord and my Savior, fulfilling his ministry, paid the price, stuck around for 40 days so 500 people plus could see him, and be eyewitnesses of um, his resurrection. But then he says, I'm gonna return to my place until Israel admits their offense, singular. And then when they say, Lord, come, he does. And he takes care of business, everybody that comes against him. That's Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? Coming and fighting against God? Man can fight against God? He who sits in heaven will laugh, hold him in derision. Man, mortal man, taking on the creator of the universe? I don't think so. And it's over just like that. One word from his mouth, from his mouth, the sword is just the word of God. Basically your history, and it's over. And they're all dead. And now he comes back. Acts 1.10 says, and they looked steadfastly as Jesus was taken into heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are angels. And they said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. What is quoted in Acts 1 is fulfilled in Zechariah, verse 4, and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives after he comes back from Basra. And gang, it all fits together just like a glove. And we see the incredible accuracy of the Lord. And we should have no doubt because of all that's been fulfilled of the hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. Pick one that hasn't happened. And then you can have an argument for not believing that the Bible is the word of God. Bible prophecy proves the Bible is the word of God. And I have every confidence that these events are gonna unfold. So what should we do with all this information? I'm gonna leave you with one last verse and you need to go back to Revelation 16 which is the, right before the final judgment, the sixth bull judgment is in verses 12 through 16. The last one 
is God stoning the earth with hailstones, weighing about 75 to 100 pounds each. But before it, we have the battle of Armageddon in verses 12 through 16. Verse 12 says, The angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters was dried up, so the ways of the kings of the east, I'm thinking China primarily, might be prepared. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Uh, For they are spirits of demons performing signs, and they go to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. You should just then read verse 16, and they gathered them together in a place called in a Hebrew Armageddon. But he doesn't. What color in your Bible is verse 15? It's red. It's the first time there's red letters since chapter 3. Right in the middle, and this is how we'll close our study this morning, about these future events, I think the Lord is stopping a Bible study. (laughs) In the middle of the Bible study, he says, before I tell you about Armageddon, he says, I want to talk to, to the church. So church, listen. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. How does the thief come? Well, you don't know he was there. That's why he's a thief. Blessed is he who is watching. How are we to watch if we don't know what to watch for? Good place for an amen. We have to understand that what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in the world, what's happening with the move towards a one-world government, what's happening in the world as far as a one-world religion, that's all happening, gang, exponentially. Are you aware? Are you able to articulate it to somebody who says, something's going on here, I don't know quite for sure what it is. We know. 1 Thessalonians 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need that I should tell you, for you know. You know what's heavy about that? Paul was only three weeks in Thessalonica. And now he's writing them. He says, guys, I I explained all this to you, the rapture, the tribulation, all of it. And now I have to write you again and explain it to you. I shouldn't have to do that. So don't ever tell a baby Christian to stay away from the book of Revelation or Daniel. Paul taught the whole thing. He was only there for three weeks, less than a month. And he's saying, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you all about these things? So he expected them to know, I'm coming as he, blessed is he who is watching. And he keeps his garment. Well, what does that mean? That means that there's salvation in nobody else except Jesus. And don't think like the people in Jeremiah's time about going back to Egypt. There's nothing back there, gang. And so he says, don't go back, remember Lot's wife, lest you walk naked and they see your shame, and then we're back to black letters. So right before the end, the Lord sort of jumps in and he says, make sure you're watching because I'm going to come like a thief. It could be at any moment. I hope it's before the Packer game. You know that's blasphemy to some people in Wisconsin. I hope it's before the Packer game. Being in Omaha, um, I, I was on the plane with a couple that was coming from Portland because Nebraska was playing Oregon. And I, I sat next to them on, on the plane. And they were so dedicated, extremely dedicated, that they're flying and spending all this money. And I love the Packers. I'll be watching the game tonight. Don't get me wrong. But... Aaron Rodgers is not um, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? But to a lot of people, he is. And I don't want to diminish the Packers. I mean, I live a half an hour from Lambeau. And I, I, I love the game. But it's not where my heart is. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, not the Green Bay Packers. And we have to have our priorities straight there. Jesus said where your heart is. That's where your treasure's at. So they're spending all this money and I told Judy when I got home the, the whole story about who I sat next to and they spent thousands of dollars. They're Oregon Duck fans who were playing the, um, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. So as I was getting off the plane, I said, go Huskers. And you know what he said back to me? Go Vikings. 
He threw it right back in my lap. Because we talked about the big game though today, new stadium and everything. I said, touche. <laughs> but our hope, our blessed hope, Packers could lose, and Wisconsin will go in the morning. But my Lord is coming back, and I have a blessed hope, and nobody can take that away from me. Amen? Let's stand and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and how you've laid it all out that we're not children of the light, but we're children of the day. And concerning the times and the seasons, we're supposed to know. So Lord, give us a hunger for your word that we can explain to people what's coming down and what our blessed hope is. That you are coming like a thief and you said, blessed are those who are watching. Lord, help us watch. Help us pray that you'd come quickly. And in the meantime, help us be about our Father's business and prioritize your kingdom above everything else. And Lord, in closing this morning, as we search our hearts and we see anything or anyone that has taken first place instead of you, like David, search our hearts, Lord, and point it out. And help us repent and have absolutely nothing that would come between our love for you and your word over anything or anybody. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.